From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. We're talking tech with Alex Zaharoff Royd on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for joining me for the fourth episode of Talking Tech with Alex Zaharoff Royd. As always, there's plenty of tech news, and we'll get to a couple of the big topics before we join our guests, the CEO and founder of Zataris, Vinay Samuel, and then the well known and multi award winning Australian technology journalist, Chris Griffith. Now, the first piece of news is that Google has retired the name Bard for its AI chatbot. Bard is now called Gemini, which Google says is to reflect the advanced tech at its core. It will be available on the web in a new Gemini app for Android and through the Google app for iOS. Google has also launched its new Gemini advanced service. Build it as a new experience. It gives you access to Ultra 1.0, which is a bit like the way you've got GPT 3.5, 4, 4 Turbo and the upcoming 5. Now, this is Google's largest and most capable state-of-the-art AI model, designed to not only compete with OpenAI's GPT-4 Turbo, which is a model that launched in November 2023, but which is expected to be a strong competitor to OpenAI's next-generation AI LLM, or Large Language Model, known as GPT-5. So Gemini Advance will be available through the new Google One AI premium plan, which will cost US $20 per month, the same price that OpenAI is charging for the paid version of ChatGPT, and the same price that Microsoft is charging for Copilot Pro. Now, just as Microsoft's Copilot Pro gives you access to AI built directly into Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Outlook, Google's premium AI plan will also let you use Gemini's advanced in Gmail and Google's Office suite of Docs, Sheets, Slides, and Meet. So similar sorts of things there. They're trying to get you to use AI in all of the Office things you're doing and decide that it's worth to pay the price. Now, next is more Apple Vision Pro news, which has now been available for a week in the US. Now, anyone going to Elon Musk's X platform can see plenty of videos that people have shared of how they're using the Vision Pro headset in their everyday lives to work with multiple screens in front of them as they're walking down the street, on the subway, even while being driven by autonomous Teslas, much to the surprise of fellow drivers on the road. Tech news site Ars Technica reports that Vision Pro is a great replacement for your large flat screen TV. And while one of its reporters suggests that their home entertainment setup is a little bit better, the Vision Pro, of course, is a complete computing device that can do so much more than just display TV shows and movies. Another tech news site called Engadget says the Vision Pro is magical and almost telepathic. They say that the Vision Pro's eyes tracking makes it feel like you're discovering the power of the force, a sensation they say that is buoyed by the intuitive hand gestures used to interact with whatever your eyes are focused on with plenty more in their article online. Just go to Engadget.com. Meanwhile, well-known analyst Gene Munster thinks that Vision Pro sales will mirror those of the iPad in a decade, and with iPad being the most popular tablet on the market uh, by a country mile, sales will soar. So finally, Apple not only sees consumers among the big buyers of Vision Pro, but the enterprise too, with Apple CEO Tim Cook stating in Apple's quarterly earnings call, with analysts earlier this month, that leading organizations across many industries, such as Walmart, Nike, Vanguard, Stryker, 
Bloomberg and SAP have started leveraging and investing in Apple Vision Pro as their new platform to bring innovative spatial computing experiences to their customers and employees. Now, uh, one of the things that we saw last week was that it was safer internet day and again you know the big thing that people are not doing uh, is using a virtual private network when they're online so please do that make sure that you're also using things like a password manager make sure that you're using things like a uh, a system to make sure that you uh, always get a google authenticated code don't use the uh, sms system that uh, sends a text message to you very convenient but really not uh, the safest way of doing things because people can be sim jacked. This actually happened to Jack Dorsey, the guy who's in charge of Twitter. And uh, it's a bit of a, an issue where even though it's much harder for that to happen in Australia, as we were discussing last week with Elliot Dellis, who is the uh, CEO of a big uh, security firm, he was targeted twice by people trying to do sim jacking. So even though Optus and Telstra and Vodafone and in other countries, people like AT&T, they're much more suspicious of this now and they're wanting you to actually go into a store and uh, you know show your driver's license and really uh, prove that you are who you are. Sometimes these uh, social engineering hackers can be extremely clever in trying to fool you into wanting to divulge information on, uh, you know, uh, well, in wanting to to fool those other people into thinking that you they are you and uh, getting you to uh, getting them to you know do the sim jack and all of a sudden all of your passwords and all those different uh, problems are you know out there because your details are now have been now been leaked to the internet. So really, please do consider using a VPN, please consider using a uh, password manager, have a different password for every single site and uh, use something like Google Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator, and make sure that you have a spare phone that has the, uh, the Authenticator already set up because if you lose your phone and then you lose access to all of your Authenticator details, that's a big problem. Now, one of the things with Google Authenticator is you can now set it up so that it will uh, you know, allow you to store those records on the internet. So if you get another phone, you can download the Google Authenticator, log in with your Google name, username and password, authenticate with either a YubiKey, one of those little keys that you physically plug into the side of your computer or phone to prove that you are who you are. And then all of your uh, usernames and passwords, well, all the authenticated codes will actually transfer across to the new phone. I guess in one sense, that's also a point of failure, but uh, definitely you should be extremely careful about making sure that you look after your phone at all times and set up the password. I was actually talking to somebody the other day, telling them about the brand new uh, stolen device protection in iOS 17.3. And to my surprise, they were not using the face ID. And they said, oh, I didn't want my phone to have my face ID. And it's like, you know, every security camera everywhere has your face. <laughs> you know, there's so many different ways that people can get your face, especially if you're talking online on on shows like this or, you know, you're a guest on, on particular shows. And in the iPhone and now also in the Google Pixel 8 and 8 Pro, which is the only other device that has a face ID good enough to be used for biometric, you know, for banking, uh, you, you know, you have that face ID inside the secure enclave of the chip. So it's really quite safe to do so. And I really wouldn't be worried about your phone uh, having that information. I mean, they're not even looking at your face. They're actually uh, setting, uh, sending a, a series, at least on the iPhone, they're sending a series of infrared dots that sort of calculate the depth of your face. And uh, it's, it's something that is just so convenient. I'm always surprised when I see people not wanting to use the face ID on their phones. Look, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment with more on 
tntradio.live and Talking Tech with Alex Zaharovroid. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in the Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted uh, a number of years. And only in the last three months are we scraping 100 on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. One reason people tune in to TNT Radio is often because they're loyal to a specific show or personality. Our personalities have been a part of people's daily routine, and people continue to tune in. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. I want to say this, and I'm going to say it just once. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, thank you again for joining me on Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt. Now it's time to speak with our first guest, who's having, unfortunately, some technical issues that we're just uh, going to put a picture up in a moment. But it is Vinay Samuel, the CEO and founder of instant data analytics company Zatyrus. Vinay, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Hi, Alex. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, Vinay, the story of how you're fundamentally disrupting the analytics, BI, business intelligence, reporting and AI industry is very interesting. And I'm always a huge fan of positive disruption. But let's briefly start with the Satiris elevator pitch in 30 seconds. Sure. Thanks a lot, Alex. So, so basically, in most big enterprises, they've got data all over the place, you know, data in the cloud, mm-hmm. uh, data in their data center. Um, and with BI and AI, really coming to prominence, if you like, or automated BI and and AI. Uh, The big problem is actually getting all the data in the one place so you can do analytics um, that joins data to give deep insight into a business. Um, And usually that's really costly, involves a lot of people um, and can actually create a lot of errors in decision-making because the data is wrong. So the quick um, scoop on Zataris is that we automate data preparation. We enable joining data in different places and we enable high-quality enterprise-grade data management for AI. Um, and that's a unique proposition when you couple that with our query optimizer capability to do it at high performance and at the best cost, if you like. Uh, so that's our um, value proposition. We're a, we're a data platform for AI uh, and analytics. Now, most people in the business world are talking about data lakes where they're grabbing all the information from all over the, the, the places that they have it and putting it into one centralized location. And so what I understand you're doing is you're decentralizing it. You're able to go to where the information is. So what Absolutely. was the flash of insight that caused you to see that the complexity of building these data lakes was too much and there was a much better way of doing things? I mean, uh, in the US, there's been a lot of talk about draining the swamp. You know, have you drained the lake? Absolutely. <laughs> I really like that, Alex. So uh, I might coin that, actually. We're draining Please, the lake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, 
Uh, yeah, it, that's the problem, right? Companies not only have too much data to put it all in the one big lake house, it's really costly and hard to maintain. The, mm-hmm. the other thing is the speed at which new data sources are found or created or, or, or um, come from other partner uh, companies or maybe there's a merger and acquisition that creates new sources. It's just impossible, frankly, um, uh, I don't see it in any organisation, to actually create that single view of the business or the single view of the data by bringing all the data together. What we do is we connect the data. We connect the queries that go out to actually resolve the business questions by creating what's called an AI-powered lake house. And and behind that proposition is the ability to join data in place and query it in place. So from a business perspective or user perspective, the user still sees the data as though it's being brought together but our mm-hmm. software joins data in different lakes, in different databases. Perhaps it's in a massive uh, file store like S3 or whatever. Uh, joins it as though it's being moved and and um, stored in the one place. But actually, the data is in many different places. So we call that a networked data lake house, uh, mm-hmm. and our product is the AI powered lake house. Uh, and and it, it takes away literally months of um, development that you need to do if you're trying to integrate data physically. It takes away the risk of making mistakes. Um, and, you know, I, I say to my friends, data uh, is like cash at the bank. Every time you move data, it's risk. You're actually creating the opportunity for someone to steal it. So if you leave your data in place in the in, where it's been created or where it's been stored and then join it, in a networked kind of way, uh, using you know this new technology from Zataris, you're actually lowering the risk of that data uh, being stolen or being changed, corrupted, um, yeah, or yeah. corrupted, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like many of the great inventions, it sort of turns the whole idea of uh, the way things have been done on its head, which I, I find to be really uh, impressive. Now, yeah. AI was the hot topic of 2023, and it's obviously going to go supernova in 2024. Uh, what with the pending launch of GPT-5, the launch just yesterday of Google's uh, Gemini Ultra 1.0, and Elon Musk is talking about Brock 1.5 launching, and no doubt 2.0 is uh, coming along soon. So you've mentioned AI, it's AI-driven, but how are your business customers using AI, and especially generated via AI, how are you using it? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a product called Gen Z. Um, which is generative Zataris, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the big thing that we're seeing this year and, and going into next year is the enterprise creating applications like ChatGPT on top of their private data. Um, mm. and, and as we all know, uh, organizations struggle to get that private data in a shape that it can be consumed, it can be trusted, and it can be served to an AI agent or an AI capability. What we do is we actually automatically prepare enterprise data for AI. So we are the AI content store, right? That that makes sure that the enterprise data that the AI agent is gonna use is correct, accurate, it's, it's in the right time sequence and actually enables the right decisions to be made by the AI technology. Now, that all sounds really funky and great from a technical perspective. Let me give you some use cases. We, we are working with a large hospital group um, to help them use AI to to improve their triage of of um, various ailments. So um, one of the first projects was focusing on chest pain. So if you go into the hospital and you've got chest pain, right now the um, the triage nurse 
um, seeing how serious the issue of chest pain is, pain is, will have only one answer, and that is you need to see a heart surgeon. You need to see the most expensive resource in the hospital at the moment, right? With yeah. AI, we can make that decision a lot more sophisticated, and we can improve the accuracy of that uh, diagnosis such that we can improve the outcome for the patient, you know, get the right diagnosis. Maybe you're not having a heart attack. Maybe it is a panic attack or maybe it's some other ailment. So we're using AI to actually um, improve that uh, that triage process. And the way we're doing that is joining to all of the hospital systems by creating a profile of that um, that ailment, if you like, and using the last thousand times someone similar to yourself has gone into the hospital and what the outcomes were to actually improve that uh, that um, decision. So that's one example where AI is not, you know, it's not taking jobs away. It's not um, uh, creating all the mayhem that, you know, some of the uh, fear sayers are talking about. AI is actually improving mm -hmm. patient outcomes, making the uh, triage nurse a lot more effective. Uh, one other one is in banking. We're using um, our Zataris Gen Z, generative um, uh, Zataris, uh, to enable uh, wealth managers to ask questions of the data. So right now, the biggest problem that a good wealth manager has is that there's just too much data to make the right uh, portfolio recommendation to their clients. And often they make mistakes because they miss something in the data. With our capability, a wealth manager with no technical experience can literally ask the our AI agent by look at a, a, a simple natural language uh, English question. You can say things like, "From all the data that I've connected you to, do you think that this recommendation is right for this client?" And the and the AI will come back and say, "Actually, you've missed this part of the the data. You pr potentially you've missed a product disclosure statement that isn't quite." you know, the attributes of that product isn't quite um, a great thing for that client. Um, and, and what that's done for this wealth management group, it's improved its compliance, it's improved the accuracy of the recommendations and given the, the wealth manager a lot more confidence that they've actually taken all of the data into account when making the recommendation. That is a great example of how AI is actually a co-worker, uh, absolutely, a helper, yeah. you know, rather than absolutely. being somebody yeah, yeah. that's going to take over your job and make you redundant, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I think is, you know, as you were sort of saying, overblown. Absolutely, and that's how I see it. In in every industry, if, if, if that we're working with, we are we are being brought in to bring AI to a decision process to improve that decision process not necessarily try and take out a whole lot of jobs or, you know, uh, stop work that's important. Uh, the business is a business. It needs to get those things done. What organisations that we're working with we, uh, are trying to do is to improve their operations using AI and, and, and create much more um, better outcomes, um, you know, strong um, uh, focus on effectiveness, if you like. Sure. Now, the next one is a bit of a curly question. I'm not sure if you yeah. ever intended Zataris to be using this way, but big tech, tech censorship has obviously been a big topic over the past few years when uh, Trump was originally elected and there was all the claims of interference from the Twitter at the time and Facebook. And it was one of the reasons why Elon Musk bought X, although the jury is still yeah. on whether Elon really is true to his word. So what's your view on it? And how can companies use Zataris tech to support data being free rather than being censored? Or is this something that you're not really focusing on? Oh, look, we, we kind of touch on that in the sense that with our technology, you can wash out bias and you can wash out 
um, you know, the concept of hallucination yes. of um, AI, um, particularly LLM models, right? Mm. So we actually use AI to check AI for bias, for hallucination, for um, outcomes that aren't appropriate. So, you, you know, this whole idea of adversarial models, so one model will detect whether a picture looks like me and the other model will actually check, is that model right and is it doing the right thing? So with, with Zataris, you can, you know, how we connect to data in different places. We can connect mm -hmm. to many different data sources, but also many different models to cross-check the models. And so, you know, organizations, you know, getting back to your question, uh, mm -hmm. worrying about um, um, various biases or, or various processes being used to influence data that we see, they can actually create models and create uh, filters, if you like, or AI that's that's checking the truth of, of that content using Zataris. So what are the other big tech trends that are shaping Zataris and your customers? Yeah, so uh, one big trend, uh, funnily enough, is many of our customers are discovering um, that the cloud is really costly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and that, you know, this idea of just pay as you go um, in many cases means that you're having these blowouts, you're having these bill shock moments uh, that we saw with the telcos. Right. So so there's actually a trend we're seeing where data is being repatriated to the data center. Uh, and, and so for us, what that means is it makes our technology even more relevant because we can join to the data center, we can join to every cloud, we can join to all of the databases and files and create that single view. We give our customers the optionality to not have to always move everything to one cloud provider or to one service. They can actually create an architecture that really suits their, uh, I guess their, their risk posture and also the, their cost profile. So that, that repatriation to the data center is really interesting at the moment. And uh, we're working with some large storage vendors and infrastructure vendors, and they're starting to rethink how uh, they're approaching their customers because of this, this nuance where people are not necessarily, you know, one-way traffic to the cloud. They're starting to think uh, hybrid cloud um, and even, you know, what workloads should we move back because, you yeah. know, the bill, the bill was a bit surprising. Uh, the other one was, was, was actually confidential computing where yeah. the, the user of um, data doesn't actually know how that data was derived doesn't get access to the, you know, the deeper information and the more private information that may have led to a, a risk score or a recommendation. So um, we're working with many customers where, you know, we, we enable them to keep their data in place and, and enable to serve the data using policy-based uh, services. So we, we have this idea of policy-based access, um, which basically means if you're a resource that has rightful access to certain data. Um, uh, you won't be seeing other data that you don't have rightful access to, but also you, you, you may have rightful access, but you, 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 you may be restricted in what you can or can't do with it. So our technology monitors the usage and the access of data from a policy perspective. So policy-based query technologies and, go and governance and regulatory-based query technologies, I think is something that's that's really going to take hold over the next uh, few years. Uh, and that's basically embedding the logic of policy and regulatory and all of those things into the code uh, so that you don't you don't have this this in hindsight monitoring. You have real time will stop you if you're doing the wrong thing. 
you know, which I think is a much better outcome for consumers and, and users. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but uh, yeah. another great aspect to your story is that you started the business uh, the way that so many legendary companies started, in your garage. So can you briefly tell us a bit <laughs> about your journey since you've taken yeah. uh, the job and since you arrived in Australia from the age of seven years old? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was lucky enough to get into the data industry really early, right? Um, I, I joined a company, a great company called Teradata, and then I went through some startups. And, and you know, a few years ago when I started this company, it, it was literally how do you get a company up out of Melbourne, Australia at the lowest cost point and have the biggest, uh, uh, you know, impact? And we did actually, um, um, you know, start in a, in a garage in Essendon um, and, I self-funded it for the first few years, uh, and it's just amazing how it's it's grown so quickly, and the markets move towards needing a technology that automatically does the data preparation, the data pipelining, and and is AI ready, has the governance and policy uh, for AI. So um, it, it's incredible. It's it, it was made in Australia, and now we've taken it to America and into Southeast Asia, India, China. Um, it's 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 amazing story. Well, it's a really incredible success story, Vinay. I really do thank you for taking the time. I'm sorry we didn't get to see you, but I'm sure we'll talk again no in the worries. future. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely, Alex. Thanks again. Amazing. Take care. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Now, last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he'll be extradited to the United States. Now, TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice, broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London. So we are TNT, lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk. We'll be back after the break. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. I tell my son, I love you every single day. Now my dad has never said that to me. Not because he doesn't love me, but because culturally it wasn't comfortable for him. Now that he's a grandfather, he says, I love you to my son every time he sees him. 
my advice to all the fathers out there, forget the cultural restrictions. They grow up way too fast for you to waste even a single precious moment. Alex Zaharoff-Royt is talking tech on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for joining us again. Now, I'm here with Chris Griffith. He's an award-winning journalist, a communications professional, a technology reporter, writer, commentator, and speaker. Chris, welcome to the program. Alex, great to uh, be on your program after all these years of knowing you, you know? Yeah, yeah. We're doing this. Yeah, collaborating. I really appreciate it. Now, Chris, you've had a long career in technology starting in 1976. I was only two years old at the time as a computing studies teacher, all the way through to spending 15 years as the senior writer for technology at The Australian, which is one of the big newspapers in Australia. And then the last year and a half as a self-employed freelancer, and that career has spanned 48 years. Now, we'll go into more uh, detail on the big aspects of technological change in a moment, but can you please tell us a bit about yourself and your incredible 48-year career? Well, I guess you could add another uh, seven years to that because I first uh, learnt computing at school. It was a pilot course uh, run by the Victorian Education Department. I'm pretty sure it was 1969 and uh, it was uh, brought in as part of our math syllabus that year and uh, that's where I learnt to do some coding using those uh, famous port-a-punch cards where you use a uh, a paperclip, a bit like how you prod a, out a SIM card, but to punch yep. holes in it. So um, that that sort of whet my appetite. And uh, uh, when I went to university, I enrolled in, um, you couldn't do a, a, a total computer science course, but you could do what they said informa- called information science and maths. So I did pure maths information science through uni, um, worked at... Um, on mainframes for a little while, uh, on a company called Norcross, which sold greeting cards, a very futuristic uh, invoicing and uh, uh, dispatch system with them. Um, but I wanted to teach as well, and I went into TAFE education. I went to a school, uh, a TAFE college, Collingwood, uh, sorry, Preston TAFE first, and it's very interesting. It was right after the end of the Whitlam government, there was a lot of money in TAFE, and there and I was the only computer teacher that they'd ever had and there was a studio with two camera people nothing to do so we decided we'd um that I'd present my classes um on and we'd videotape them for our night students so we'd so I was doing kind of television type teaching um there was no syllabus and they said do you mind? Could you write syllabus? So I got to learn to write syllabus. And that was a skill that was particularly useful as I got um, into journalism, because if you're writing syllabus, you need to think about how people can, people have got to understand it or you're wasting your time. So you've got to break everything down simply. And I think that skill has helped me a lot over the years in writing technology. Um, But after many years in, in, the TAFE system in, in Victoria and Queensland. Um, in the early 80s, I formed a, a little startup. We never called it startups in the 80s. We mm. had a mini company with myself and another mate. He was a hardware expert who'd worked in Mount Arthur Mines Computing uh, Centre. I was a software writer. And uh, the PC era had just begun. 
and we learned how to network PCs so we could go into a business in Queensland where we operated and we could build a network PC system for data entry or whatever they wanted at thousands of dollars less than they'd otherwise pay using a mini mainframe, which was the smaller cut-down mainframes that business were using. And we made uh, a, a really good living uh, out of that. We had a very bohemian lifestyle living in an old rundown Queenslander in St Lucia near the, <laughs> you know, around there near the river, near the Brisbane River, and um, uh, and did that for quite a few years. The biggest uh, system I had took over a year to build. We had a prototype uh, uh, developed as a standalone system. Uh, but I, I created a network version, and that was in body corporate management. If you know how complicated operating body corporates are, and to, there's everything from the debtors and creditors to calling of meetings and issuing levies and that. We had that running for 14,000 apartments in Queensland in by the mid-1980s before the Terrible. internet era. So that took me to the 90s and... Uh, I was the sort of person, I was always interested in doing other stuff. When I was doing one thing, I always saw the greener grass about other things. And for long reasons I won't go into, I ended up in journalism and yeah. um, uh, went back to uni, funded from our business. I, I did a, another degree in uh, in journalism. And um, excuse me, this is my Apple um, AirPods. I have two different sizes of ears and that doesn't really <laughs> help um, we can hear you. That's okay. Yeah, and uh, uh, the rest is, you know, I've worked... Um, History. Yeah, on TV a bit and, and uh, radio and then then a series of newspapers culminating in the odds. That's right. So that's a... Um, I hope that's not too too long for your readers. But that's okay. Viewers, a bit of a part of history. Look, I mean, people can go to your LinkedIn yeah. page and, and, and see all that you have. They can see the, the rest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, now... Yeah. Now, we've had the personal, so you've told us a bit about you know, sort of your journey through the world of tech, but we've had the personal computing revolution of the late 70s and the early 80s. Then we had the internet revolution of the 90s, the smartphone revolution of the 2000s, the tablet computing revolution of the 2010s, and now we are in the generative AI era, which is also now joined by the Vision Pro revolution. So you've lived through it all, uh, and uh, you know we've heard a little bit about your overall thoughts on technology, but how else do you think... Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on how technology has progressed over this last half century? Uh, I, I guess we've seen it going from being a, a kind of grassroots revolution with, in Wells with everyone programming and I'd go to those computer meetings and we'd learn how to, you know, do some shortcuts and we write those in the paper to the emergence. I think the last 20 years we've seen the emergence of the big, very cashed up global companies running tech. And um, that's been great. You know, I've never, I never uh, decry their fantastic uh, innovation that they've brought to tech. I'm talking about, you know, Apple, Google, all of those guys. Um, we're now at a phase, particularly brought on by a generative AI, of wanting to um, kind of put it in perspective to regulate it, not to over-regulate it, but to make sure those big companies don't become totally predatory, just stomping over people's rights, whether it's copyright mm -hmm. law, protecting authors and so on, but generally protecting IP. And uh, I think what happened with OpenAI, they were so, Sam and Altman and co were so keen to get into markets so quickly, they really didn't think a lot or enough about 
some of these ethical implications. And government, on the other hand, now is having to do that. Um, but mm. government isn't really equipped to moving so quickly. Government is for years been always behind in regulating technology because it's so hard to understand, let alone work out what the rules around it should be. But generative AI is, is a huge challenge to government to even over its sovereignty, like where the laws operate in a global market and, and so on. So I think the last 20 years we've seen the big companies come out there. We've seen the domination by, you know, the dominance of Apple and uh, Google and so on. But we're seeing on top of that social media. So we've got the big companies, social media, you know, dominance of, of uh, the phones and, and tablets type markets. And we're now grappling with, you know, how we get that balance right between innovation and protecting people's rights. So uh, ChatGPT, you know, entered the sort of zeitgeist in November 2022. Last year was all about the AI revolution. And this year, of course, is it's going to get, uh, you know, go supernova, as I was saying to uh, Vinay before in the previous video interview. So how do you use AI in your daily life at the moment as a journalist and for anything else? Well, I've, I've been careful not to overuse it because, you know, it's it's our brain power as journalists and our perceptions of what's going on that's important. I don't think chat GDP ever tells me what I should be focusing on in journalism. You know, that's part of the skills to look about on the panorama and, and, and what you should be writing about. Um, frankly, I haven't used it much at all for, um, for telling stories. I have used it a few times just to try and sort out some of the research that I've got there, but you can't trust it. Certainly these iterations i have used a lot though um for the thing that uh, is often difficult on websites and that is having enough illustrations like illustrating mm. stories when you're dealing with some some of the sites i have use wordpress and you've got to have that that key image and 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 websites anyway new sites look terrible without any images all and i've used mainly uh bing gtp and which is now mm. copilot to yeah. Uh, build images for stories uh, and some of them are hilarious like I, I asked I was doing actually I was actually for our body corporate site and uh, I, I needed a representation about sinking funds and uh, it, it drew this kind of 18th century ship that looked like the in Denver Denver and uh, <laughs> all this money that had gone overboard and was you know sinking into sinking. the ocean <laughs> I mean, that's that's how you join the dots sometimes with yeah. chat GDP. But illustration has yeah. been pretty good. And um, I know as we move on uh, with GDP5, uh, we had uh, inklings of this before about video that hopefully what we're going to see is um, the ability of, of GDP to go through and literally, you know, go through process videos and movies and and make that available in summary form in text and 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 go even further maybe one day we'll soon create videos just by explaining what we want in the video it will be very interesting yeah. to see that um yeah well there's, this, there's something called pika.art and also google lumiere and these are text to video platforms and i've been saying for the past you know three or four months or so that i think sometime later this year or maybe next year we're going to have the first hit tv show or movie created by somebody, some kid in their bedroom, all done through uh, text to video. It's 
people are doing it now, but it's just not uh, something that's worthy of uh, the cinema yet. Yeah, I think I, I mean Alex, getting the video, the stuff going, the technology is is one thing, but having the nuances and and capabilities of a, a producer that'll take a lot longer. I'm not saying it's impossible, mm. but but you you look at all the the great uh, directors and producers and their styles and the way they use lighting and there's a lot of emotion and a lot of humanity in movies, which I think is going to be a big pull to replicate at that view. So I, I, I tend to think the videos will be probably technically good, but they'll probably be pretty bland. I mean, a lot of chat GDP is very clever and, and, and fantastic in terms of the, the the knowledge it can reproduce, but in terms of writing styles and that, it tends to be, you know, pretty ordinary, not not fantastic. Mm. It doesn't not yet. use yeah, metaphors absolutely. and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, we've seen uh, Google announce yesterday, the 9th of February, as we we're recording, that it's going to have uh, Google, uh, sorry, it's now called Gemini. They've changed the name from Bar to Gemini. But there's also reports that Apple has purchased 22 AI companies over the past year or so. It will make a huge AI push uh, at WWDC 2024 in the middle of this year, their Worldwide Development Conference. So what are you, uh, what are you expecting from Apple? Um, yeah, Apple's tended to keep its powder dry, and we've seen this now you know, in the Cook era as opposed to the Jobs era where Apple trailblazed. In the Cook era, um, they take things fairly carefully. They look at how the market develops, and we've seen that with ProVision, really. I mean, we've we've mm. had VR headsets out for quite some time, and, uh, I mean, this is not a VR system. It's a AR augmented reality, um, uh, which I think has got a, a, a good chance of, of doing pretty well because it's... Apple put the boundaries around what the devices will do. And I think Apple uh, obviously will come into uh, the generative AI market, but I think they'll be pretty careful and scrupulous about, you know, uh, what the veracity of the information is, how accurate it is, mm -hmm. where they're sourcing the information from. And they'll avoid the um, issues where they possibly can around misinformation and um uh, you know, wrong information and and privacy breaches. That that tends to be Apple's playbook at the moment. They'll they'll do it, but they'll hang back. They'll put their own imprimatur on it to make it different from everyone else's. So this is the Apple way of doing things. But I think they'll be a bit more careful than than some of the early iterations. Yeah, no, I, I believe so as well. I mean, normally Apple does something and it shows the rest of the industry how, well, at least Apple thinks it should be done. And then all of a sudden, everybody else seems to copy that. And I know that uh, although uh, Vision Pro is more augmented reality than virtual reality, you can spin the digital crown on top of the, uh, the, you know, the, the glasses and then you can you know, immerse yourself in this world, which doesn't let you see out. You can block the outside world completely. And currently you can use those Bluetooth controllers from Sony, PlayStation, Logitech, and others to, to play traditional uh, games that would normally be on your iPad. But there's nothing, as far as I can tell, that's stopping Apple from having those virtual reality experiences that you get on the MetaQuest Pro. And I guess we'll probably learn more about that at the middle of the year, or even perhaps with the Vision Pro too. But you did touch on misinformation and disinformation there. And I mean, 
you know, you also touched on overregulation. We don't want to see too much of that. But with misinformation and disinformation being the, one of the big things that's happening in Australia and also other governments around the world, they want to set themselves up arbiters of uh, what's right and wrong. But given there's been so much uh, government claims about what happened with uh, COVID, can we trust governments to be uh, the good arbiters of misinformation and disinformation when sometimes they seem to be the ones dishing it out? Well, I think, you know, it's a mixture of there may be nefarious sort of government-type activities around um, censorship and that and, and actually uh, well, we're seeing plenty of, you know, overseas misinformation coming online and so on. But I think uh, there are a lot of well-meaning people in the government that, that are concerned and they're, they're lobbied and pressured around um you know, the, the type of uh, content that children can see and the type of mm. uh, bad information online. So I think, I think you know, it's not a hard and fast rule uh, in some countries. Uh, I think government will be striving to do the right thing. In Australia, I think the moves to do this are, are well-intentioned and, and so on. We, we definitely need um, to handle uh, misinformation, misinformation, uh, in a very strong way uh, because we've got elections coming up in this country to you know next year and the US elections at the end of the year Russia goes to the polls you know mm. I don't know what how it's going to work there but but uh, we're in the era where a lot of people are um, uh, you know elections really can be compromised by uh, fake videos of, of leaders saying things that they never would say making admissions they'd never make um, and by the time um, uh, Meta and Co get around to doing something about it, um, it's too late. You know, millions of people have seen this. And mm. at the same time, we've seen Meta and Co not particularly well um, in a good position to um, not not regulate, to enforce their regulations. I think the biggest question now is how are these big companies going to manage the, reg the very regulations that they've made around this because I think they're struggling. Men are struggling. Uh, X, we know um, Elon Musk got rid of so many of the employees involved in, in monitoring what was on Twitter and, and so on for misinformation and bots and, and so on. So we have, uh, if, I, if I dare say, the fabric of uh, our democratic society to a large extent is... Um, is in play through what's going on online and it's a big question and as, as i just said it's regulation is one thing but being able to enforce the regulations is the big test and you need lots of people lots of very well tuned algorithms and a whole lot of things to come together i don't think we're there anything like being there yeah, no, absolutely. And look, the issue of deepfakes, I mean, originally deepfakes, they looked a bit dodgy. You could sort of tell uh, it wasn't quite right. And in fact, somebody sent me a video of a deepfake of Biden, uh, you know, debating yeah. a deepfake of Trump. And within three seconds, I knew that it had to be fake because Biden sounded incredibly lucid, which is not how Biden sounds today. <laughs> <laughs> they used uh, you know audio of him from a few years ago and it, it just sounded spot on but look you know meta for the old facebook company they want to create an open source large language model uh, is anyone going to trust them elon musk has been on a 20-year apology tour and he was just in congress early this week apologizing to parents for you know all the various things that instagram and facebook have been allowing on the internet and i mean the 20-year apology tour i don't think i'd trust the open source large language model from facebook would you 
Well, no, I've I got to say that um, uh, I, I try and, and keep a positive view about our big tech companies. And I think to a large extent, Microsoft, you know, I have a reasonable amount of trust for them. Um, I'm not saying total by any means, but but more than others. But but Meta, uh, we've seen it really um, uh, abuse its position in the way it's, it's trained its large language models. Um, I wrote a story, um, and you know other people wrote a story, but I, I went in, into chapter and verse about a particular repository of 196,000 books that had been mm-hmm. put there for, uh, I, I guess. Uh, uh, people who were not associated with companies to try have some data for training large language models and Meta came along and drank from it and used all that and at the same time says it doesn't believe it owes them an acknowledgement or compensation or or that. Um, it just makes me feel that their native tendency is, is more exploitative, that really they'll mm-hmm. do what they can get away with and... Yeah. Um, They'll probably be caught out being unable to um, manage their own regulations a lot. And uh, given their dominance with Facebook and Instagram and, um, you know, they're on threads, um, I'm I'm kind of really worried about what's going to happen in the next 12 months in the misinformation space. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got the big tech censorship issues in the States where the US government has to abide by the First Amendment, but uh, US companies don't have to comply. And uh, that's, I think, causing problems. I mean, the government's been able to sort of go through the companies to to censor people when, in theory, the uh, US Constitution doesn't allow that. So I don't know if you have any comments on that. But I mean, we don't even have First Amendment protections here in Australia. Well, this is where, you know, the whole landscape of, of um big tech companies and AI challenges, you know, us to the very constitution. We haven't really, we didn't in 1901 think about how we're going to frame our constitution for AI in 2024, nor, nor should we be able to. Um, and, but we're, we're in that spot, that space. And uh, uh, yeah, well, you, you're right to be skeptical about governments, but on the other hand, if the big tech companies, um, can't do it. I, I think citizens are going to have to rely a bit on government to fill that space, or to to really push, or and and um, if they're not going to do it, um, to push and and pressure the big tech companies to make sure they're resourced to enforce their regulations in in that. I, I, we're going to be um, interesting to watch what's happening in Europe. I think Europe is a fascinating landscape because I know people are worried about overregulation as well as uh, a lack of enforcement on the other hand. Well, the DMA Act in Europe, that's a digital marketing act where they deal with antitrust and and uh, big tech companies in, in like on our phones enforcing us or getting us to use their apps or making it more advantageous to shop with them using their payment systems in their app stores. All of that gets blown up on... Um, March the 6th, uh, Apple and co have to uh, abide by the rules of uh, the Digital Markets Act. And so that's less than a month away. And that's going to be a test case. That's not specifically about AI, but it's in that area of who can reign in whom, you know, between governments and the big tech companies. And I think the, the answer at the end of the day is if if we don't trust either, maybe what we do trust is the combination of the two 
keeping an eye on each other and, you know, we as journalists keeping an eye on government, that that's probably going to be the modus operandi if we can't find any other way of doing it. Yeah. Well, and journalists keeping an eye on the companies too. Now, privacy is also something that the big tech companies like to play fast and loose with. How often are you checking your privacy settings in the various apps and platforms that you're using? Uh, well, I guess Apple has been a little bit better in this, um, mainly because their, um, their their whole business model doesn't depend so much on Advertising. on sharing data. And we've seen the, the the standoff between Apple and Mark Zuckerberg over Apple's move to allow users to limit the data going from the app they're on to other apps, which has been the big thing. You know, you're using App A and um, App B, C and D while they're just sitting on your phone are actually scooping up what you're doing and learning from it. And that was what Apple have dealt with. And we're seeing Google, you know, change from their cookie system and, and so on. So privacy is a big issue. I, I do think the public generally are a little, strange things to say, but a, a, a bit more relaxed about it in the sense that they accept that there will be some um, use of their their online habits. Uh, people now, I think, more accept that it might be advantageous that if they're using um, certain devices, they might get ads that are relevant to what there is. But the big areas of concern around privacy, I think, are still um, around the big privacy breaches and the... Mm stealing of data and the likelihood that people's IDs, you know, they will be stolen. That's the area that is a biggest concern. But, yeah, around marketing still it's a problem. I mean, I used to have – it was quite amusing to me because it shows how these apps don't work properly. Is I would do reviews at The Australian on certain devices and I'd be looking up, doing the research beforehand – on on some of the aspects and then for the next week even though i'm not buying it but after my um, when and after my review was produced i'd get ads for the stuff that i was actually reviewing but i'm i'm yeah. not a, a buyer of it but that's how but i i think that is not as i just said that is not probably the central privacy issue the central privacy issue is people pinching our our medicare data people's data about their mental health uh, consultations and diagnoses and and various diseases that they don't want in, you know, whether they're on drugs or, or whether someone's had an abortion, for example. Those are the sorts of privacy matters that um, we have to really keep dealing with in online communication. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, there's so many more things we can talk about, but um, you're going to the big Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Is that the first time you've been? Uh, it's going to be... I think uh, no, I've been there several what times. What are you expecting to see there? Okay. Uh, I've been following. Yeah, uh, and, last uh, year I was there, and, and I think we'll see more of that. I th there's a very interesting um, uh, uh, kind of rollout of low-Earth orbit satellites and their connections to our terrestrial network so that... Um, soon we'll be able to use our ordinary mobile phones, go 300 kilometres west of Uluru, and while there's no ground network, be able to make um, uh, text first, then calls, then video calls from the middle of nowhere, and that links yeah. into Optus and Telstra. They've signed deals with Elon Musk when, 
um, Starlink to produce that. We've got uh, Amazon getting more active in Australia with its ground networks, which have been operating a few years. Uh, so I, I expect to see more of that. And we're starting to see these known as satellite as a service, you know, mm. uh, um, being sold in that way. And uh, that, that's a big issue. We're, we're also seeing... Uh, um, Technologies around light. I saw last year uh, around radio radio waves, but also light. Uh, light. Uh, they're calling it Li-Fi. Um, yes, I remember. I remember um, hearing that. We're just we're about to uh, go. LinkedIn is the best place to yes. find your work. Well, look, thank you so much LinkedIn. for joining us today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Chris. We'll talk to you again in the future. This has been Alex uh, talking tech with Alex Hart of Roy.